very much in favor of the counting of points. Does it work for you? No. Hey everyone, welcome to The Run Through, the figure skating podcast where we talk about all the things that make us kiss, make us cry. I'm your host, Adam Rippon. And I am your other host, Ashley Wagner. And we are joined, as always, by the one, the only, not Olympic champion, but two-time Emmy award-winning human being, Sarah Hughes. I actually won those awards for being human. So thank you. The for first me. person to ever win Emmys for just being human. Showing up. <laughs> yeah. And it's working out really nicely for me. Wait, I meant to tell this story last week, but when Ashley was in Atlanta, she taught a skate and sculpt class and I went with her to the rink. I did not take it. Don't worry, everyone. But someone came up to me after the class and said, are you not Olympic mm-hmm. champion Sarah Hughes? <laughs> She got recognized in the wild. Isn't this incredible? That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. So I'm, I mean, I know you guys have some fans, but I have fans as well. I'm garnering a fan base. <laughs> what felt better, winning an Emmy or being recognized? What about the time I won the Olympics? No, that didn't happen. What about the time you ran for office? Ugh, that felt the best. I hope she wins. Me too. Me too. Another another accomplishment for the Sarah Hughes brand. That's right. That's right. Because when you Google Name me, brand. you see her. So I need her to keep doing well. <laughs> or we need to keep on doing this podcast and then eventually we'll take over. Yeah. The algorithm will shake out eventually. The yeah. not Olympic champion Sarah Hughes fan club is growing by the second. My dream is that you'll <laughs> both be um, running for the same elected office one day. Oh, oh my gosh. Which versus Sarah, S. Hughes? Yes. I do want to know what they would do, you know, how they would really help people understand which Sarah. They're going, we're they're not the same. <laughs> Just over and over at every I'm debate. not changing my name. So I don't think she she's going to, to either, if I'm going to yeah, be guys, quite frank. It's going to be a long time <laughs> bit for everybody. Um, well, today is going to be a little bit of. A heavier episode, but I'm really excited to have this conversation. I think that it's one that is so important to have, and it's in having these conversations that we actually continue to kind of move the needle and push the bar in the right direction. So before we get into this episode, I do just want to offer up a trigger warning. We will be speaking a little bit about sexual assault, sexual abuse in sport, uh, physical, emotional abuse. So if those are things that you find you are sensitive to, be kind to yourself. Just really check in with yourself if this is appropriate for you to be listening to. But with that being said, why don't we really get into this. So I think the reason why we're having this conversation in the first place is because a couple weeks ago, I went to both Adam and Sarah and really was frustrated because in my experience with sexual assault, I feel like I am consistently being reminded of it every few months in this sport. And it can be a really triggering, traumatizing experience to live through every single time it comes up again. And so it's also a really lonely experience. And I haven't felt a lot of other athletes standing up for the problem that I'm trying to highlight 
And some amazing feedback that I got was really that my experience, while it is singular and unique to me, is not all that singular and unique in this sport. And so today, I would love to not talk as much about my individual unique experience and really open it up a lot more to what we think the sport as a whole can do to change the culture. Because I had always hoped that my story would highlight the culture that I think really needs to change. And in a lot of ways it did, but also in a lot of ways it kind of became this one very singular experience that made it hard for other people to kind of jump in and speak to as well. So um, we're definitely going to try and kind of keep this a bit more broad in the way that we talk about this. And I think that's going to be really helpful because I think like at the end of the day, the change that we need to see in our sport and in other sports is something that we all want. It's something that Mm -hmm. we need. And, um, you know, if we just kind of jump right into it, you know, like in our sport specifically, and like Ashley, you know this firsthand just as well as I do, is that, you know, your peers when you're competing are all different ages. Like you, when we're competing at the senior level, I'm 28 years old and I'm competing with somebody who could be 15, we're considered peers. But in the real world, we are not peers. I am a 28-year-old adult with a 15-year-old child in this event. We are not peers. I remember one of my first Grand Prix. I would have been 15 or 16, and I was roomed with Tiffany Vise at the time, who was a pair skater. And she had to have been at least six or seven years older than I was. Mm -hmm. And I think right off the bat, something that's really important to speak to in skating is the social dynamic. But you have to understand that figure skating is a sport where you really select this sport and you are hyper-focused on this sport from a very young age. So you don't see a lot of diversity in athletic activities of these athletes. Obviously, I always try to point out, you can skate as much as you want. You can turn this career into whatever you want. It's not one recipe makes an Olympic champion. But training is usually five days a week, if not six. And it's going to be for a couple of hours a day. And so your entire social environment becomes the rink and the skaters. You don't necessarily have time for a life outside. So you already have that lack of diversity in social experience that is very unique to, I think, elite sport in general, but really figure skating since that's what we're here talking about. Oh, yeah. And I mean, like, Ashley and Sarah and myself, we've had this conversation before where it's like, when you're in school, there's this like fine line of like, I'm in eighth grade and this person is a sophomore in high school. And that mm-hmm. is totally different. But you can be the junior level in 13 and 22. And that's where you find this like these blurred lines. And when I was growing up, there really wasn't a lot of education on 
what's appropriate as no there was none none there was no. no education absolutely i remember and i've told both of you this story before that like when i was 17 and i was turning 18 in a few months my mom pulled me into the car one day and she was like you're about to turn 18 everything is different when you're 18 you can never be alone in a room with somebody who is under 18 don't text any of your friends that are under 18 if you are going to be with your friends at the rink make sure that you're in a group with them you are never to be alone that is inappropriate do not do that my mom absolutely grilled it into my brain when I was 17 and a half years old and that that was just inappropriate it was wrong do not put yourself in a situation like that do not offer to drive somebody home do not offer to walk somebody home you need to find somebody to make that situation appropriate for the both Mm -hmm. of you and my mom grilled that drilled it into my brain and that is an education that's a lesson that needs to be ingrained into the young athletes of today. They need to see the situations that they're in for what they are in the real world. And they need to feel and see that power dynamic that I think that they've never been taught before, which has led to a lot of different issues. For anyone listening, you know, that advice from Adam's mom might seem obvious. Like, obviously, yes, that conversation needs to happen. But I think I have really found that common sense is not all that common. And these conversations are not a guarantee. I also think that not there's no guidebook to being a skating parent. If you come from a world that has nothing to do with skating, the culture of figure skating is so alien and foreign to you. And you are not going to understand the intricacies and unique dynamics and power imbalances that exist in this sport. So a lot of the times I will see comments where it's like, where were the parents when all of this was happening? Why didn't the parents do something? There is not the knowledge base to understand what to watch out for, to set your kid up for success. And while there might be some things that just sound like common sense, there is also this extremely unique relationship in skating between partnerships, uh, coaches. There is a financial pressure that comes to this. So there are a lot of competing factors that can also lead into why kids get put into these positions that they never should have found themselves in in the first place. But I actually don't think that that advice from Adam's mom sounds like common sense to me from outside of the sport. I would guess that most parents don't think to give that advice if their kids aren't in a sport where they're around younger kids because most kids aren't hanging out with younger kids, like the sophomore Mm -hmm. in high school to the eighth grade example. I never had a conversation with my parents about hanging out with people my own age because that's who I was friends with anyway. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to tell me to not hang out with younger people because I wasn't around them really. Like, sure, in the same school, but I don't think most parents are even having to think about that that much. And so Mm -hmm. probably most skating parents, if they didn't skate themselves, are not even really thinking about that. Because they're remembering yeah. their own experience as someone who was always with people their own age. I remember having that conversation and and realizing that, like, I'm 17. I have friends at the rink who are 16, 15 years old, which is an appropriate 
age to be friends with, but I'm also friends with people at the rink who were 24 or 25. And yep. to think that there's this 10 year, especially when you're young, right? When you're young, this is when the power dynamics, there's this really, there's this big imbalance. And um, I, it was the first time I really thought about it. And mm-hmm. I, I could see that like, yes, that's, it's completely different when you're a, a legal adult everything is different and i think that even like if you have that conversation with yourself of where are the parents sometimes they're there and the discrepancy of these ages doesn't it feels blurred right because i think that like when you're in this sport and you take these sports really seriously you're in it and it can feel like a little bit developmentally you can feel a lot younger than you actually are Oh, absolutely. I think that there there's a huge social uh, developmental delay in skating. Uh, and again, that's simply in all just sports, I think, truly. In all sports. it's. I don't think this is unique to just skating. But I think because we're focusing in on skating, this problem is coming from a lack of diversity in life experience. You mm-hmm. are simply a skate. I mean, I was that like people in high school didn't know my name. I was that girl who skated. And to give everyone context, when we're talking about how these huge age ranges kind of come into play. So I remember at my rank, there were the little kids and the big kids. And we were I, I was always in the big kids group. Now, the big kids could be starting at 13, going all the way up until, you know, the 21-year-old. Because big kids means double axel, which is not... <laughs> it's a skill. It's right. a skill it's a level skill. and not an age group. But then... The junior level, you can start competing internationally at age 13. Mm -hmm. You are, as a female athlete, you are going to age out of the junior level at 18. As a male pair and dance, is it specific to pair and dance, Sarah, or does it also go through singles as well? I think it's specific to pairs and dance. Okay. Okay. So then men who compete pairs in dance at the junior level have until 21 yes to compete at the junior level so this is how you were going to get a 13 year old and a 21 year old who are now in the same social environment and that does not all we are not sitting here saying every single 13 year old is being threatened by every single 21 year old that's not what we're trying to do here we're not trying to make this problem seem like every kid is being threatened here but no, there have to be it. protective. No, but there have to be protective measures and educational measures and boundaries and responsibility put on people in charge of these social environments. And figure skating just doesn't want to take ownership of these interpersonal dynamics that get so muddy so fast. Well, yeah, I think one thing I'll say is. Um, from working on other sports in my job, like U.S. figure skating is not unique in not wanting to take responsibility. Yeah. Um, and and maybe that's the wrong way of phrasing it, but U.S. figure skating is not unique in in not wanting to see the problem as cultural and preferring mm-hmm. to see it as a few bad apples to like be a little cliche. Mm-hmm. And like what you're talking about, where you put a 13 year old and a 21 year old in the same environment. Maybe it is that there's a few bad apples, but it's sort of like, you know, when you have a group of crops, 
you do everything that you can to make sure the crops stay good. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, a few apples will always go bad. That's, there's no, nothing you can do about that. An organization can't control individual people's choices, but they can create environments where it's harder to make the wrong choices and do a lot more educating for the people in those situations so that they don't make the wrong choices. Right. And I've, I've had this conversation with you but i keep saying that because we've talked about this a bunch we talk a lot when we're not on this podcast right all three of us talk a lot when we're not on this podcast but you know this isn't me playing the devil's advocate for like an organization but i can see where an organization might feel like well what do you want me to do in skating as a parent you're a private contractor and you're hiring people on your own, right? And so it can feel like, well, what do you want me to do? Like you hired that person and what I don't I don't know. And I can feel how that might make other athletes also feel disconnected to a situation like this. And yeah. when you think of sports like gymnastics, there were a lot of training camps that these athletes went to and they were together and these were camps organized by USA Gymnastics. And so that's where it can really feel like they really had their hands in this. And at U.S. Figure Skating, we don't have a lot of those training camps. No, it's so singular. And it's if I, when Ashley wanted to work with John Nix, that was nobody going, Ashley, go there. That was Ashley Mm -hmm. pulling up every coach in America going, where is the best place for me to go? When she wanted to work with uh, Raphael, it was the same thing. When I wanted to work with Raphael, when I wanted to work with Brian Orser, that was mm-hmm. me trying to find the best situation for myself. I had to make all of those decisions on my own. Nobody guided me there. And that can feel like, hey, I made these decisions on my own, but... You know, Sarah, when I had this conversation with you, you brought up this really great point, if you remember it, was that, like, but the education of these people who you are allowed to hire needs yeah. to be really implemented, and that is their well, responsibility. They still, the athletes are still your athletes. They still wear mm-hmm. your jackets in the kiss and cry. They win medals for you. And so I don't I don't think it matters so much that I think it's a complicating factor that coaches are hired privately, but I don't think it separates it's U.S. figure skating from though. the situation. I mean, these are your athletes. They're under your care in some way, and you credential these coaches to go to events with them. And like you have a lot of power in in making sure that coaches are are certified in certain ways like you can add training minimums like educational minimums for those people getting hired and same for and the there athletes there are some there are some but they are pitiful and they are not enough and a lot of these coaches i mean i i was at a conference yesterday and this incredible lawyer who works with Child USA and they focus on child abuse was speaking to a lot of the problem that these national governing bodies or NGBs in sport run into. And it's that for for the skater and the coach, we have safe sport training. And this is a problem with the NGBs as well as safe sport in general. It's a video. It's a video with a couple of chapters. I could play the video walk away, come back, 
There's a little quiz. You can't fail the quiz. It'll just make you rewatch it again. And then it's like four questions. You could figure that out. You don't have to watch these videos. You are not actually training your athletes. You are simply having them check a box so that they are no longer considered a liability. And that's just not enough. That is, I mean, when I went to U.S. figure skating before I came out with my story of sexual assault, I wanted to go specifically to U.S. figure skating before this story dropped because I didn't want to burn the house down. I wanted to be able to use that story as leverage to push them to create positive change. And I very rarely give U.S. figure skating credit. Uh, But in this moment, they listened to some of my ideas, which mostly focused on reform at the junior level, and they implemented them. And they implemented them because I suggested very easy safety systems to put in place that they could immediately do just to protect their junior athletes a little bit better from peer-on-peer assault, from, you know, over-consuming alcohol, from putting them into weird travel situations. And I came in, did the work, said, this is really easy. Why don't we do this? And they did that. But after that, they have done nothing sense to develop any kind of athlete programming that is educational, informative, going to create any kind of cultural change. And it's a lack of ownership in the problem of this culture that is why we keep on getting stuck in this position. And, you know, people come forward with their stories and their experiences every now and then and drop it onto their lap. And they're like, well, this is a bad apple. Well, this is a bad apple. But they're not turning around to see the whole orchard of bad apples that have been chucked at them in the last couple of years because that's an inconvenient truth and they want to keep on looking ahead. They Well, just and they're not keep- thinking about what's making these apples, so many apples go bad. Mm-hmm. Right. Can we make fewer apples go bad? What can we do? They're just right. not thinking about that. And it's confusing because they have... I feel you mentioned the parents earlier, Ashley, like one of the things I always think about with parents when people say, where were the parents? Like parents are in a tough spot, I think, with these governing bodies where the governing body has complete, absolute power over your child's dream coming true, assuming Mm -hmm. it is their dream, right? Mm -hmm. To go to an Olympics or a world championships or whatever. And that was a big problem in the gymnastics situation was... It wasn't that parents were were turning a blind eye necessarily. It was just that, you know, they wanted so badly for their kids to succeed. Whether you think that's good or yeah. bad, I think it's natural. And the kids wanted so badly to have these opportunities. So there was this culture of silence that resulted from that because people didn't want to rock the boat. They wanted to get selected for teams. They wanted to get chosen for opportunities. And I think that's especially, I mean, it's especially resonant in figure skating, which is also subjectively judged and you get selected onto teams in this kind of arbitrary way sometimes. And the reason I say that is that absolute power that the governing body has should make them feel like they can do something to make fewer apples go bad. They have all this power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I was literally speaking with the CEO, Tracy Merrick, who called me last week before they released that uh, letter, um, which we should definitely speak on that. Uh, and, you know, I 
I actually really do appreciate Tracy. She is the first U.S. figure skating official that I have really talked to in depth since I came out with my story. She has spoken to me the most. Uh, She does not have a figure skating background, which I actually find really refreshing. I think it's an opportunity for this organization. Uh, But she's only been doing this for four months. And so she has had to kind of swan dive into this swamp and learn not only how to get a dinosaur back on its feet financially and, you know, bring life back into the sport as far as bringing in audiences and and the business side of the sport, but she's also now having to deal with understanding the cultural nuances that are so intricate and complex and really not as obvious as you would think that it is. And so I've had a lot of conversations with her and, you know, she really does listen, but I think part of this problem really is just a a lack of ownership. And one thing that has always been said to me, and it's not just from the current CEO, but anyone I've spoken to at U.S. Figure Skating about creating change is they say change takes time. And that's true. No, no doubt about it. Creating cultural change takes time. Creating safety nets and safeguards for kids uh, and non-starter hiring policies and suspension policies that are rigid and not gray, that's immediate. That does not take that much time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's where I, I told her, be better faster. Like it just, it doesn't have to be that complicated. You can absolutely put these safeguards in place and you're going to immediately come head to head with people who are not following the rules. And when they don't follow the rules, they need to be reprimanded for not following those rules. It's the people that are given a slap on the wrist given a little suspension and then they're back working with kids or athletes who are abusing their partners or another kid at the rink who are, you know, continued to be funded by Team USA. It just is a system that talks the talk, but in no way, shape or form have I really ever seen it walk the walk. I mean, it's obviously something that (laughs) no governing body wants to own that like we have this problem and and that's understandable but it is a really important issue for the future of all of the athletes involved Mm -hmm. and I know all of my friends and peers out there if we sit down and when I've sat down and I've thought of different moments in in my life and in my career there's a lot of moments that I think, wow, that was really inappropriate. (laughs) And that was a not a good situation that I was in as a young kid. You know, also in this sport specifically, and also I think what makes skating specifically a really interesting beast is that there's no team element to it. It's so individual it's so Mm -hmm. on your own that you think of solely your own experience as that athlete as that parent and child dynamic even Mm -hmm. the coaching part of it the dynamic is truly just the athlete you're hiring these people and sometimes to the point of sarah 
you're you get parents and you get athletes who have never done this before. The majority of skating parents don't have a skating background. So I know no. when I think of my mom making choices for me and my career, my mom was making the best decisions she could with the information she had. And then it was just, okay, I guess maybe this is like this. I don't know. I don't know how this is going. I don't know if this is normal. I don't know if this is right. I don't know if all of these high-level people act this way. And that's where the education needs to come in. And so, Ashley, I want to talk about, like, what are the changes? What are the, the actions that these governing bodies can make? How would you like to see things in these governing bodies at U.S. Figure Skating change? How do you make this change? Obviously, I believe that this organization needs to own their problem. In owning their problem, it's going to be empowering and educating the athletes first because you have to teach these athletes what is and is not acceptable behavior, the way that they are allowed to be treated versus the ways in which they are not allowed to be treated, how they can be spoken to, what qualifies and classifies as verbal abuse. If a coach is yelling at you, is it that they're yelling at you because they're motivating at you? Or is it that they're screeching at you and they're tearing you apart? There are so many nuances to coaching, and I think it makes it really difficult for coaches to navigate this. But like tiny violin, I'm sorry if you have to relearn how to coach because we're trying to protect kids. Get over it. I think that you need to create some kind of programming that is specific to figure skating that is not just pictures of a soccer player who looks sad because I'm sorry, the figure skaters are not going to relate to that. A lot of safe sport education is focused on the team environment. We're not in a team environment. We are not in a, I know that track and field deals a lot with eating disorders, uh, but While eating disorders can kind of stem from a very similar problem, in figure skating, we are absolutely being told that we need to be smaller to be better athletes, be better jumpers, to really benefit the technical side of our skating. A lot of time with no context, too. No context, but it's also because it's an aesthetic-based sport, and we are being told that this tiny prepubescent body is the aesthetic gold standard and so there's just no education for these kids giving them information about what they're actually going through why it's not okay and how they can stand up for themselves who they can talk to conversations that they can have with their coach if that's not going well with their coach how they can reach out to other resources to help support them what parents can do when they have a coach that is consistently pulling them aside and telling them that their kid is fat at the age of eight. I I mean, it's, it's that kind of stuff that I really think, I mean, I, I'm on a rant. It just makes me so mad. Well, you know what? I just have like a few pieces of advice and that's to like any athletes that might be listening to this, any young coaches you really need to take a look at your situation from the outside looking in and to like any young Mm -hmm. athletes out there because a lot of us started giving lessons, coaching on our own when we were teenagers. Yeah. 
I easily could have found myself in a situation where I could have not felt like it was inappropriate and it totally would have been. And because Mm -hmm. of that talk that I had with my mom, I never put myself in a situation like that. And I think like if you're a young coach and you're um, coaching athletes that are under the age of 18, you need to text them about a lesson. Always include the parent. That it, it might feel like, oh, there I'm just telling them. There should always be two people. There should, there should always, always be two people. You should always be mindful of that. If you're in a, in a pair team and your part, you are over the age of 18, your partner is under, include the parent. It is just the proper etiquette. Or the coach. Inclu- always include somebody in that message so that mm-hmm. it is a group. And that there is not a one-on-one situation. That it is inappropriate. People mm-hmm. and young athletes need to learn that. In the same way, Ashley, I know that we had this education. We were afraid to eat a poppy seed bagel because it was mm-hmm. grained into our mind. That is bad. That is inappropriate. That'll put you in a bad position. You could have a failed drug test. It was so serious. And in the same mm-hmm. way, this hard line needs to be drawn so that the athletes and the coaches and everybody in the culture can feel that like this is just as serious it's just as important as not eating a poppy seed bagel i remember being at like a bagel shop being afraid there'd be poppy seeds on a plain bagel contamination and that was from education so education does work that does work when you are taught that these things are right and wrong. Because you never failed a test for your poppy seed bagels. Never, because I never, I still won't take poppy seeds. I'm talking about it like won't it's take, an insect. the risk. You yeah. still won't inject poppy seeds? No, never would, never will. I feel like the sports like figure skating where the kids who do it are usually not full-time in school like that's a big factor too is the mm-hmm. coach in that situation is taking the place of a t- teacher like you would normally be yeah. in class when you're on the rink at, when you're at a certain level and you're going mm-hmm. in the morning or going during the day like you would never want your teacher to text your like your kid like if it was no. if you're a parent like a teacher texting a child would be considered inappropriate immediately yeah right? because that's not appropriate but when you have these one-on-one dynamics it can feel like oh we're friends it can really well or even like like a pseudo parent yeah that's That's what you'll have coaches who are you know potentially driving kids to school from practice Mm -hmm. and obviously as a coach you know if you've properly done your safe sport training there are a couple of things that you know to do if that's the case if there's no other option but that being said, you always, as a coach or as a person in a position of power, have to consistently and constantly check yourself because there can always be this duality in a relationship. And you can be professionals and you can also be friends. But it is your job as the position of as the person in a position of power to evaluate that relationship and say, what is in place for this student or this athlete if they actually are uncomfortable in being friends with me? 
is there a space that they can go to talk to someone and tell them that they're uncomfortable with this relationship and they want out of this relationship? Is there a space where they can tell you, hey, this isn't really working for me without fear of some kind of repercussion, without fear of you not wanting to coach them? And so that's why it's just so much easier to keep these relationships out of a gray area. And if it's a professional relationship, it's a professional relationship because, sure, maybe that feels stiff and awkward and less fun. Guess what? It just helps keep a kid safe and comfortable. Mm-hmm. And if that's the price you have to pay, I'm, that's just not that hard. Well, and from the perspective now of the minor, of where we've all been in this position, when yeah. you're 15, you're 16, 14, you so badly want to show everybody that I am mature. I am yeah. an adult. I, I Especially am, if your peers are so much older than you. Absolutely. And the people that you're looking up to is like, I want to be that level. I want to be just like this person. I want to skate like them. I want to be as respected as this person. So you act like that person. And so you'll have a lot of people who are come off as very mature and mm-hmm. again, this education goes both ways because if you have that education and you're the and you're a minor, you will now know and have the wherewithal to realize that you are in situations that are not good and that gives you the power to speak up and it gives you yeah. the power to feel that, yes, I am right. This situation is bad. I should tell someone. But right. when there is no education like that, when the lines are blurred, it's very easy for you as a young person to think, I don't think that was bad. Or maybe this is what it's like when you get older. This is just what happens. This, this is, is just how it is. what happens. I mean, that's why for me, one of the first policies that I addressed was on the Junior Grand Prix circuit because there's a lot of minors, but there's also a lot of people who are... 18 and you're in Latvia and you can legally buy alcohol and so post event there's always usually some kind of a party and everyone is socializing everyone has just trained really hard it's a time to kind of relax let go you're actually around your peers at the elite level and so that is where you find 14 year olds who are with their peers and they're 18 19 20 21 and drinking and they want to do the mature thing and hang out with these older kids and you have kids with minimal body fat who are not developed, who are consuming alcohol for the first time in an environment where you are peers with someone who's 21 and there's a significant age difference and the power imbalance is just so insanely set up to fail both these younger kids, but also the older kids because this is their social environment. And while, yes, there should be ownership on older athletes to understand what is and is not acceptable, that comes from education. If there's not education in place to be like, you are 18 years old, your partner is 14 years old, I do not care that you guys skate with each other every single day under no circumstances is a romantic relationship acceptable or legal then it's just going to be a socially normal thing that keeps on happening. And that is absolutely a problem that we have in this sport. And again, it's, yes, those legal adults need to know that 
this is just the way it is. Yeah. This is the way it is. There's no way around that. No, I mean, so that, so what I, I forgot to kind of bring this full circle. So my point was if they are underage after their event, they're going home. They do not need to stick around for a party. And so, or they're moving to a different hotel with their parents, but they have to, if they're not supervised by an adult, they have to go home. And you just, it's when people point a finger of blame at the victim or the individual who found themselves in a bad situation, it's not about the individual making bad choices. It's about setting up a system where that individual doesn't even have the ability to call those shots because we have thought about their safety. We have set them up for success. Obviously, not every single person is going to leave this sport completely healthy emotionally physically but we can do as much as we possibly can to set up these younger athletes as well as these older athletes to understand how we need to interact with each other what's Mm -hmm. appropriate what's acceptable yeah i'm curious what you both think of this because when i think of an organization that's you know when i think about usa gymnastics and the way that they've sort of undergone this sweeping cultural change. And I wouldn't say that they're done. I don't think they would tell you that they're done, but I think they've made a lot of progress. But all of that progress came on the heels of athletes speaking in like Mm -hmm. floodgates opening for athletes Mm -hmm. to speak. And it became this, you know, obviously there was the larger legal problems that had to be addressed with the team doctor um etc but i think beyond that the floodgates were open so that any athlete who felt that they had been abused in any way felt empowered to come out and say something to the point that all of it had to be holistically addressed it couldn't just be okay we fired the doctor and he's going to jail it couldn't be like the carolis are fired or or whatever they had to address this larger culture because the the girls wouldn't stop talking about it. Now, I'm curious what mm-hmm. you think of like, what is the best way or what would have made you feel empowered as a young skater to talk more openly about the way you were feeling? Oh my God. <laughs> I think like, does that come from the organization? I don't know. I'm that's yes, a genuine I question. Think it, I think it comes from the organization. I think for me, I did not come forward with my story. I had no intention of ever coming forward with my story uh, until I really felt like no one believed this and I had to, but because I didn't want to be a thorn in anyone's side. I didn't want to be hard to deal with. I didn't want a judge who was really close friends with this person who was my peer to not believe me and think that I was trying to just cause a fuss and then have that create problems later in life. So, I mean, yeah, if I felt like there was a safe, neutral environment for me to come to and be heard and be believed, absolutely. I mean, the other problem that I addressed when I came to you as figure skating, for the longest time, judges were team leaders. Uh And I found that to be completely inappropriate because if something happened to me physically, sexually, emotionally, they're the uh, last people you want to talk to. I'm not going to talk to a judge about what happened to me. I'm not going to report 
my uh, experience to someone who's going to judge me at nationals. And so I think, you know, that was a step in the right direction, but it's creating safe, neutral spaces where you don't have to be worried about the ramifications on your career. And I don't think that's work has been done yet. For me, it goes back to like education again, because Mm. in the situations where I felt very uncomfortable if I knew and if I had the tools of like, these are scenarios that are bad. This is not a good thing. This is not a normal thing. This is not the way somebody mm-hmm. should treat you. If I had those tools, I would have felt comfortable to go to somebody. But I also didn't want to be the person to be like, I think this was a bad situation that I was in because nobody else was saying it was a bad situation. And yeah. and for me, it's it's just to have the tools of of this is appropriate, this is inappropriate. People should not talk to you like this. People should not put you in these situations. If I had those tools, I would have felt more validated in approaching someone. And yeah. obviously, yes, the last person I ever would have wanted to approach would have been an official and especially a judge. Are you kidding? That's the last, yeah. last, last person I would have been like. I found myself in this situation because as a kid, I'm thinking, okay, they're going to think I'm stupid that I did this and that I'm dumb and that I'm immature. And then they're going to think that when I'm skating. And it's just, it's, you you create this big monster in your mind when really, yes, if you felt uncomfortable, there was probably a reason and again, if yeah. I had that education as a kid, when I saw things around me that felt, huh, that felt a little weird, that looks a little weird, I would have known to tell somebody, hey, I saw something that I don't think is right. Hey, somebody treated me in a way that I don't think is right, that felt bad, that felt weird. Um, but I didn't know. I didn't have those resources. And so I felt like it must just be me. I need to just yeah. you know, keep my eyes on my own road move forward yeah but i didn't have that education i didn't know listen to your gut that would be my like the one thing i want anyone listening to this to understand if something has made you feel uncomfortable honor that validate that um at this conference that i was at we were having these roundtable discussions about just what can be done to create some kind of bridge for athletes and these NGBs because there's no trust in the NGB. I don't trust this NGB. Uh, I think a lot of athletes don't trust this NGB. Um, And this liaison position was brought up, which I thought was really, really interesting as just a neutral ground for people to go and talk about their experiences to. Because the other thing is sometimes people don't come forward with their assault or abuse because they're not they don't want to take a legal route that's really scary and when you go to us figure skating's safe skate page the recommendation is to contact safe sport uh, or your local police department those are two very scary options that's it's not a neutral ground it's not a space that you feel comfortable going to if you're not sure what's happening to you And if you want to just kind of get more information or understand the situation a bit more, 
I wouldn't have done that as a kid because I would feel like as soon as I report something to Safe Sport, the wheels are going to be in motion and something is going to have to happen. And then maybe what if I'm wrong? What if what if what I thought was not okay is legal? And that's usually not the case, but that's where my head was at as a A lot of times that is the case, sadly. I mean, that's true. That's it's very true. And you know, that that's where we could we could I could go on forever about statutes of limitations, but we're not gonna that's another podcast. Um but I think Yeah, I think what you're talking about, like the liaison thing, probably ends up being a former athlete. Someone who's younger, who understands who can, this culture, who's a little closer in age and generation and experience to the current athletes to understand their experiences a little better and also be mature enough and out of the sport enough to not be one of them and not be socializing. Right. That's what you mean. Yeah, I I think that's that's kind of what I have been just really interested in because there's no neutral space to talk about what a person is going through um and i think people love to act like abuse is this big gray area uh but it's not it's i think a lot of abuse is very black and white and obviously there's shades of gray to everything but why not act like it's black and white because I think if we take that black and white approach you are going to end up finding more bad apples and protecting more kids from those bad apples and it's also an educational opportunity for younger athletes who might not fully understand the power that they hold in a social dynamic and correct that behavior early on Help them understand why what they're doing is not okay. Give them resources and tools, but do not just let athletes continue to skate for the sake of you having invested however much money into them as an athlete. And, you know, we're going to push them through to the next event simply because. I feel like the grayest area is probably on the verbal and emotional side of things, especially Mm -hmm. at the higher levels of the sport. Where, you know, you a lot of coaches will say, and I've heard this, if this is unclear, I work a lot in the gymnastics world also. And so I've had a lot of conversations about, you know, oh, we, you know, you hear people say, well, we can't, we can't say anything anymore and we can't blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, people say, and I think this is true to some degree, you don't make it to the Olympics by not ha- like by not having hard days and by not really like working hard and by being pushed. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, people get motivated in different ways. I mean, you both have talked about the different ways you were motivated. And I think, you know, some people take external motivation, like negative external motivation really well and process it and channel it the right way. And some people don't want or need that. But I think you end up in this gray area of, well, if we want success, if the athlete wants to be successful, we have to push them. I have to push them as the coach. And it's just sort of like it, it, that is a gray area. I think there's, but there's obvious lines like the weight comments or, you know, the, the degree to which you're yelling at someone, obviously anything physical would be an, an easy line to draw. And I think those lines exist. It's just that people cross them and the kid doesn't know what to do 
at that point because they're like, he's just trying to push me. She's just trying to push me to be the best. And it's just sort of like, and then you end up with these people in the broader culture saying things like, and this was probably more true in gymnastics, saying they're not going to be as good. They're not going to win as much because that program was really dominant for a long time. And it was, you know, a lot of times the credit for that went to the Carolis who were running this tight ship, if you want to call it that, but it wasn't that tight. And there were a lot of horrible things going on under that regime. And people were saying, well, they're not going to win as much. And it's like, okay, great. I don't care. Like, and we shouldn't, that doesn't matter because if, what is a gold medal worth at the expense of a child? So I always find that really, really interesting that people believe that in order to be successful, you have to be hypercritical towards these athletes. And there is research that I was just looking at focusing on athlete resilience and Perfectionist athletes tend to have extremely high expectations that often are almost beyond unrealistic. Now, if you have an athlete on the other end who is participating in self-compassion and is creating space for mistakes, they were looking at varying levels of perfectionism kind of moving towards self-compassion. There is no difference in performance outcome between someone who is hyper-perfectionistic and someone who is much more compassionate towards themselves Mm -hmm. with mistakes. And so I think it's that kind of a mentality of you need to be so focused on being perfect, letting yourself be pushed to this nth degree, being hard on yourself. That data does not track It is not the way it has to be. I do think you need to be pushed, but I think you need to be pushed in a way that motivates you in a way that when you're tired and you need to learn how to skate on tired legs because your legs are going to be dead at a competition. Yes, push me there, but do not emotionally push me for the sake of making me a tougher athlete because the research shows that that does not actually make a difference. No. And you know, one thing that we were really lucky to have, like when we were older, in our 20s, mid to late 20s, when we were working with our coach, we were motivated in two very different ways. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Raphael said almost nothing to me. He would just be like, it's good or it's bad. I mean, same. And that's. <laughs> he, he could say to me, it's good or it's bad. And that was enough for me. He would be yeah. on Ashley's tail, he'd be on her tail. Yeah. But yeah. I could also see at the end of the day, and you tell me if I'm wrong, when the session was over, he'd come to you, he'd make sure that you were all good, like what happened out there was what happened out there. Yeah. And he would constantly check in that you were consenting to this way of training, that this was something that motivated and you. know what? You. I, will always, I will always give him that credit. I don't think that Raph is the right coach for every single totally skater. Totally I really not. don't. No, just like every coach really isn't don't. the right coach for every skater. Exactly, but- exactly. It's, it's true across the board. With Raph, he was the best coach for me in my career. Uh, was he a complete asshole to me on the ice? Yes. But I consented to that. I felt for myself that I needed that hindsight. That was some other stuff that I needed to work through, <laughs> but it was definitely showing up in my skating. But at the end of the day, he'd pull me over and be like, you looked really upset out there. Are you okay? And I'd be like, well, I mean, 
<laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but um yeah, I think it's uh it needs to be a conversation between the coach and the athlete. And while you're hiring That's my point. out I yeah. mean that. Yeah, you're hiring out these professionals. And so it's this really weird dynamic because it's like you wouldn't tell the plumber how to do their job. That being said, you are also allowed to be like, hi, plumber. Why are you well, searching OK, but a in- plumber is working with a plumber is working with pipes like coaches are working with human beings. It's it's nuanced. You don't tell a totally. plumber how to do a job because pipes work in a specific way and they're the same. Humans are different. Humans no, are not that's, all that's the same. The so it's just, you can't do that. I think it's, the problem I think is that in your 20s, like you both are saying, you can have that conversation with your coach. But when you're 13, you probably don't know no. how to have it. And I don't even no. know that your brain is developed enough to have it at, at that point. And oh, so she, she's not. Well, and you don't know any other option of what you know. You don't know anything more than what you you do know yeah your life experience is so limited that unless you've been given the toolkit to say hey that makes me uncomfortable or be empowered to go to your parent and say hey mom I'm getting yelled at a lot by my coach my coach is talking to me a lot about my weight and I don't know what to do about it my coach said this to me and it makes me feel kind of weird and then the parent be given the tools to go have that conversation with the professional that they're hiring like this is it needs to be a multidisciplinary approach you need to be empowering multiple groups of people and it's not the same it's not a band-aid for everyone they need different styles of education they need different standards that they are also being held to yeah I also think there's always strength in numbers and I do think that U.S. figure skating would benefit from having more camps where Mm -hmm. these skaters who are at the same level and around the same age come together and have call it group sessions where they're talking about coaching, what, however you end up structuring yeah. it, but give them each other because like we're saying, these parents a lot of times don't have a skating background. So even if you really trust your mom and you have a great relationship with your mom, like does she really understand what I'm going through You know, as a teenager? I mean, that happens to teenagers who aren't athletes. You're like, my mom right. doesn't get me. My mom doesn't understand <laughs> So we're adding me. a level of complexity Yeah, already. I need to talk to my friends about this because they're the only ones who get me. And I think skaters mm-hmm. end up really isolated because there aren't camps a lot of times when they are together, they're competing. It's this really high stress environment. Like, I yeah. think they would benefit from more group settings. Those kinds of camps I think would be super beneficial because you would just be more connected to your own peers like it it really can feel so isolated I mean when I was young I can I trained totally by myself at a rink in Philadelphia it was just me and my coach and a few random public skaters that would come Mm -hmm. in and out so I was by Mm -hmm. myself all the time so for me to socialize it was at these events and I remember going to competitions where it was like I had two goals one was to do really well and the other was to make friends because I didn't have any friends and I would have done anything to have friends 
I was the only person going to like a sectionals where I didn't have that group of people going like, go Adam, I get the golf clap because I didn't know anybody there. <laughs> Nobody knew me and I wanted to yeah. fit in. I would have done anything to fit in. Which, and, by the way, that desperation to fit in creates even more, it cre- makes absolutely. you even more vulnerable to end up in an inappropriate situation too. Like, yeah. so it, yeah, bringing people into groups could serve multiple purposes in giving them a support system of people their own age and also yeah. creating a social environment for them where they don't feel like they have to do something that doesn't feel quite right just because they're trying to fit in. They're like, well, I already have my friends. I don't need to put up with this. Like, I don't like this. Also, I'm I'm good. Putting them in front of potential trusted adults. And making them more familiar. And you know, for like if we're talking about a liaison in a perfect world, making that person or people uh, accessible, visible, uh, you're going to be so much more likely to talk about what you're going through to someone that you know than a complete stranger that is hired by the exact organization that is holding the keys to your Olympic dream. 100%. And so that's where whatever kind of remedial fixes are brought to the table it needs to be brought on by u.s figure skating but it needs to not look like u.s figure skating because yeah, I'm everything that has been this, done so far is not enough that letter that the ceo put out last week um uh-huh. where she said that they were creating a staff position for yeah. someone who will represent the athlete voice. I'm I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember exactly what it said, but yeah. I think that's in theory, in best case scenario, that ends up looking like someone who doesn't work for US figure skating, but works for the athletes. Obviously, US figure skating needs to pay that person. You can't expect someone to do that in, as a volunteer. <laughs> but yeah. you know, so they have to yeah. be an employee, mm-hmm. right? There's no way to fully separate it. But I would like to think that they figure, I hope they figure out a way to keep that person somewhat separate from the power structure so that the skaters feel safe talking to them. I mean, I was talking to her about this position and it was already someone I know that they would want to bring into Colorado, which for me, I'm like, okay, then you're already limiting the person that's going to want to take on this job because they're going to have to uproot their life to take an advocacy position in Colorado Springs, uh, which not a lot of people are going to want to do, but hopefully there's someone out there that would. Obviously, the hiring pool is limited in Colorado based on recent hires. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) And that's that on that. And that's that on that. But it's <laughs> this is where it's like, what's wrong with the culture? You have no policy or standard in place for acceptable behavior. And that acceptable behavior spans beyond just the workplace. Because we live in an era now where when you're getting hired for a position, you know that that company is going to be looking at your social media. You know that they're going to be looking at anything that you've put out into the public space. That is fair game. And so when you have publicly spoken out against survivors of sexual assault, you are not hireable. And the fact that she is still in this position is a slap in the face to every single skater that not just any skater who has been a victim of this particular person, But every single skater who has ever come forward or 
spoken about their experience with sexual assault in this sport. It means you do not care about survivors. You do not validate their voice and you are willing to look the other way. Yeah, it feels like obvious next steps need to be taken. Um, period. Hard stop. <laughs> um, it just, that letter kind of seems like this. There needs to be action behind the words. It, it was written with the best of intention, but if you're going to put out a letter saying, we're thinking about maybe doing this, that's not news. Yeah, that's... I think, I guess they have like the three things that they're doing, which yeah. is the athlete committee, the staff position, and some something vague about training and education. Yeah. I hope that those are all positive steps, but it does still feel like they are figuring out what to do. Well, and the thing that I think where they're not understanding the frustration is truly coming from is that all of those answers to this problem are really great ideas. There is nothing wrong with the intention behind that. But this is in response to a takedown piece by USA Today not USA Today. Um, yeah, USA yes, Today. USA Christine Today. Brennan. Why was this not done years ago? It's just starting to feel like instead of getting ahead of this problem, it is always in response to someone causing a fuss. Yeah. It's frustrating to watch NGBs be reactive after what happened to USA Gymnastics. Well, they're all so scared. Like, that everyone is so scared to be USAG. Well, okay, and... but if you're scared to become USAG, then start protecting your athletes now. Because, right. like, yeah, yeah, it's counterintuitive what they're saying. We don't want to be USAG, so we're going to pretend we don't have a problem. Well, that's how USAG ended up being USAG. They pretended they didn't have a problem for 20 years. Yeah, and I think a lot of NGBs see it as they owned up to their problem, and because they owned that problem and had to deal with it, that's what took them took them down. And sure, um, but they're better off than almost every NGB now. Because they have so many more safeguards in place than they used to. I interview athletes for my job all the time, and the difference between interviewing athletes four or five years ago even to now is remarkable the amount that the the gymnasts seem to enjoy doing gymnastics the amount that they seem comfortable expressing themselves just as personality i'm not even talking about expressing discomfort with things just as Mm -hmm. becoming their own people and that's like something i i want to bring up is that there are so many positives that come to being in sport and they i feel totally outweigh a lot of the negatives and i think that in sport yes you you can you grow up quickly and there's good to that there's bad to that but you get a sense of ownership of who you are as a person you learn to be motivated you learn um how to make friends in your own in group of people there's so many tools and so many things that i got from being an athlete that i'm so grateful for mm-hmm. and the more tools and more information that i got as i got older made my experience that much better and if i had more tools and i had more education when i was younger 
I would have been able to enjoy and get more out of those experiences. And the overarching theme of like what I learned in sport was that I made so many deep connections with so many of my peers as I got older that those are still friendships and people that I'm still connected to based on Mm -hmm. this like bonded experience that we had of this crazy journey of, of being an athlete and those a lot of those really great experiences I had were experiences where I did feel like I was in a safe environment and I did feel that um, I wasn't in any danger or that I wasn't in a situation that wasn't inappropriate. Yeah. And I got those tools as I got older, but I really believe that like this internal look of like what USA Gymnastics had based on this I- I- incredibly awful situation they were forced to make a lot of these big changes these big decisions that have now really implemented in the same in the way that you're talking about sarah that like you can see the athletes enjoying this experience more Mm -hmm. because there is i i feel from from the outside looking in that the focus is different that there is this the focus greater... is on them the focus is on them and it re- it's truly and it seems to be an athlete first perspective and safer athletes are happier athletes and if you take that weird guesswork out for them of whether or not a situation or environment is unhealthy for them they are going to thrive And it's going to be better for the sport overall. You are not going to see athletes dropping out of the sport way too early on in their careers because of overtraining, because of an eating disorder, because of verbal abuse, because they just can't do it. They're burnt out. They hate the sport, whatever. If you protect athletes, you are going to have a greater pool of athletes to pull from for Olympic teams, for national team. It's just going to be better for the sport. Yeah. And happier athletes are better role models. And then they're more likely to come back and be involved in the sport. I mentioned this to Tracy. I said, look at the number of top athletes in U.S. figure skating that have actually returned to work in this sport. It is an abysmally small number. And that says something about the sport the way it makes people feel if you don't want to return to this sport that's a failure of the ngb yeah and i feel like everybody deserves to feel in the same way i think ashley that we've had these moments of like when you go to a rink that you're home and that no matter where you travel to if you move whatever that when you go to a rink you'll always feel at home and I feel like everybody deserves that that's one Mm -hmm. of the most beautiful parts about being part of figure skating is that you have this sense of community and everybody deserves to feel that and I always feel so bad when somebody feels jaded or somebody feels like I I can't be a part of this I have to leave that but I understand it I understand it and it that really sucks yeah. And that and nobody's nobody, nobody deserves to feel that way. Yeah. And I think the reason why we're all so passionate about this is because skating, and I'm including you in this, Sarah, as well, skating has impacted our lives in so many great ways. The ice was my safe space. 
the ice got me the life that I have now. And I want another kid to have access to the sport in the way that I did because it opened so many doors for me and it brought me into this current chapter of life that I'm in. But that safe space is not always safe. And that's where you see a lot of vulnerable kids be taken advantage of. And athletes in general. It's not always a 14-year-old kid who's put at risk here. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of grown adults who are also abused, assaulted, and being put into situations that they never should have found themselves in. And so I think that's where it's just the conversation. I, I hope that anyone listening, that athletes feel more ownership in this problem because we are all part of the problem and not in a way that means it's everyone's fault that things are like this, but we all have the ability to implement change on a cultural level. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, before we wrap up, Ashley, you put together um, a list of resources. Yeah. Um, like Safe Sport and outside of Safe Sport and in your local police department. Where- yeah. So if you have experienced anything in skating that you are uncomfortable with, that you believe is abuse, assault, U.S. figure skating and skate safe um, ask you to report to Safe Sport uh, as well as potentially your local police department. If that is something that you are uncomfortable with, you're not ready to do. I have always loved Rain. Uh, which is the Rape Abuse Incest National Network. They have a national sexual assault hotline, which is confidential. It's 24-7. You can call in, talk to a trained professional, uh, and it is not a mandatory report. I believe there is some flexibility on just connecting you to resources to understand how to appropriately report what you have been through. Uh, If you are part of the... LGBTQIA plus queer community. There is also a LGBTQ plus IA national help center uh, and they have a lot of great resources. There is a um, youth and senior hotline. There is also just a general phone that you can call. There is an email as well. So again, that's Rain. That's going to be the National Sexual Assault Hotline. And then if you Google LGBT National Help Center, you will also find a lot of resources there. Right. And those resources are there for a reason. They're anonymous. You can talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. If you feel like you need to reach out, please don't hesitate. Yeah. And above all else, if something or someone has made you feel uncomfortable, listen to your gut respect your experience and just from one survivor of sexual assault to another your story is real your story is valid you deserve to be believed and i hope that anyone who needs to be connected to resources feels empowered to do so um well i think this has been a great conversation it's important i'm ashley i'm always impressed by your bravery to share your story i think that um the conversations that you've brought up are really important. I'm honored to be a part of it today because um, I think we all, all of us athletes need to start having this conversation. Yeah. And so um, I'm glad that we were able to do this here on this podcast. And um, 
Yeah, thank yeah. you. And I appreciate Sarah, it. And Sarah, thank you also. I think it really helps being able to hear kind of that behind the scenes NGB USAG perspective as well because we have seen an organization completely crumble because they have not addressed the boogeyman uh, or boogeymen or boogie women um, and they have had to rebuild and there is a guideline and there is an organization to look to and they are not in any way shape or form perfect uh but it just shows that it can be done and we should not be waiting for our sport to become the next USA gymnastics in order to implement actual change no absolutely not um everybody thank you so much for listening we'll see you next time here on the run through this is Adam and Ashley We'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. And as always, rate, review, subscribe. You can listen to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, feel free to reach out to either Adam and I. Uh, I am on Twitter and Instagram at ashwagner2010. Adam, you are? On Instagram at Adam Rip, on Twitter at Adam Rippon. All right. We will be talking to you all soon. We're trying to get on a every other week schedule that is our goal tbd we no, love no, goals. we're on an every other week schedule That's yeah, so far we yeah. are so far okay <laughs> okay so every other week um we are talking about bringing on guests uh we have a few in mind already so definitely look out for that but please send us your comments and really looking forward to more of this so yeah. thank you everybody we'll see you next time bye bye